I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. There's an excellent new documentary called The Greatest Night in Pop that just hit Netflix. It's all about the making of We Are the World, which is, of course, the biggest all-star recording of all time. Written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie and produced by Quincy Jones with practically every singer alive, from Tina Turner to Ray Charles to Bruce Springsteen, joining forces to try to raise money for people starving in Ethiopia. It's also the 39th anniversary of the recording session from 1985, so almost the 40th anniversary. It seemed like a good moment to take our own look back, so we have a packed episode for you. First, Bao Win, the director of The Greatest Night in Pop, will take us into some secrets of the session and the documentary. Next, and this is really cool, I have an interview with Tom Baylor, a longtime associate of Quincy Jones, who's actually the guy who did the vocal arrangements for We Are the World. He decided who sang what, basically. Finally, I have the legendary Sheila E., who expands on what she reveals in the documentary for the first time that she felt used by the makers of We Are the World to try to get Prince to come to the session, which, of course, he didn't. But again, first up, here's director Bao Wen. It was one of the most purely enjoyable music documentaries I've seen in a long time. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot. I knew a fair amount about it coming in, but going into it, I guess you didn't know much about it at all. Yeah, it's funny because I was like two years old when the song came out. The only reason I really knew the song is that my parents were refugees from Vietnam. They spoke really little English at that time, but they would listen to Lionel Richie records, Kenny Rogers records, and then We Are the World. And so I had that song kind of playing in the background of my childhood. And in a way, that song was like a bridge between my parents and I. And so that's how I knew the song. I didn't really, my parents didn't let me watch TV. I wasn't exposed to the global impact of the song at the time. And the story itself, this was the time I wasn't watching MTV back then, so I didn't see the music video, and I didn't know the impact of it then. When my producer, Julia Nottingham, approached me with the idea, but yeah, I didn't really know so much about the making of until I started this film, really. We had worked on a previous film, Be Water, about yeah. Bruce Lee, and that was uh, mostly archival. That was in 2020. We all know what happened in 2020, and we knew that we should try to find something that was archive-based because we didn't know when we were going to be able to shoot again. This man, Larry Klein, who was a producer of the American Music Awards, who was in the film, she called him up, cold-called him, and gave the elevator pitch. He just answered by saying, I've been waiting for this call for 35 years. <laughs> so that was a good sign in many ways, right? Because there was this richness of footage. We were living in a bit of uncertainty. A story in the 80s where audiences were familiar with these artists in that period. I was born in the 80s, but I have an affinity for that decade, and I wanted to make something that was propulsive, fun, joyous. It replicated that era. She told me a story. I also had these like visions of, oh, this feels like a heist film. Lionel Richie is like Danny Ocean assembling his team. And so there's a bit of those elements. They're subtle in the film. To be honest, I was on the fence for a little bit of whether or not I was the right person. As you said, I didn't know the story so well. But I think for me as a filmmaker, I'm always looking to discover as along with the audience when I'm making the film. I think the sort of the sign, the serendipitous moment was I was visiting my parents in Vietnam. They since moved back to Vietnam and I got into a taxi cab and there's like this 60, 70 year old taxi cab driver. He puts on a mix CD and the first song that comes on is We Are The World. And that made it indicative of how global and how 
poignant this song has been for so many people of all different generations and all different nationalities. So I, I wanted to really get into the night and, and see how that night unfolded. There's a bunch of footage just floating around on YouTube. Number one, you use a lot of stuff that I don't think was ever out there. But number two, you show the power of using it properly. Yeah, to be honest, like I was getting a lot of those memes sent to me <laughs> and I didn't want to take on these memes, but sheer luck and chance, a lot of those were addressed. Obviously, the Michael Jackson Huey Lewis thing is something that is across the internet quite a lot. But when you realize Huey was taking Prince's part, he didn't know he was going to get a solo. But if you check- He had to sing a three-part harmony all of a sudden with Sidney Lauper, who, as Lionel says in the film, can just sing up as up high. I think it, it helps understand and give context to what was going on. And Michael was, obviously, we didn't get a chance to talk to him, sadly, uh, for because he's no longer with us. As we can see in the film, he was a shy person. I think he wasn't trying to be anything more than vulnerable in a lot of those moments. Huey was one of my favorite people to talk to in the film. And I hope when people watch the film, they understand uh, the situation more than just what happens a 30 second meme. Yeah. For people who aren't aware of, of the meme or the TikTok, it's basically that, you know, Yui is doing his best on this part next to Cindy Lauper. And Michael is standing there with a blank expression on his face, looking at him. The implication on TikTok and stuff is that Michael disapproved of what Yui was doing. But in fact, as you say, it's much more complicated than that. It was just a stressful moment for everyone. It was supposed to be Prince's part. And one of the things that's revealed in, in your movie is that Sheila E. was there, but Sheila E. came to believe that she was there primarily as a lure to get Prince there. But yeah, so Prince didn't show up and they really had seemingly went to the last minute on a wing and a prayer assuming and hoping that Prince would show up, even though he had never confirmed it. They, they asked Kenny Loggins, who was a good person to do a solo. And then Kenny was like, Huey Lewis has a great solo voice. The Sheila E moment too is, was something that was eye-opening and heartbreaking when I first heard the story because he told us on camera that she'd never spoken about this moment. And for her to open up about it almost 40 years later was, again, really vulnerable on her part and generous for her to do. And to Lionel's credit, actually, he didn't have any notes. He was one of the producers of the film, but he trusted us as the filmmakers completely. So no notes. And at our Sundance premiere, he said that's what happened and he doesn't deny it at all. And so I, I think that's looking back at it, as you said, it, it was a clever idea. It didn't work out, but that's the way that the cookie crumbles in a way. The other thing I was not aware of is poor Al Jarreau, as someone said, started celebrating the song before the song was recorded. And so he was basically intoxicated. And so had a lot of trouble getting his part right. And one of the things the film underscores so well is this is all done in the middle of the night after the American Music Awards from, I don't know, midnight to 7 a.m. or something like that. And so with all of the world's most famous singers standing around you, so if you're fucking up your part and drunk, you're not going to be a popular guy that night. That was incredible to, to learn. Yeah, for real, I think that moment might create some more memes because if you look at Willie Nelson and Dionne Warwick looking at Al Jarreau, I think that's more of that, I think, more relevant than what happens with Michael Jackson and Huey Lewis. And again, to Al Jarreau's defense, from my perspective, he's just coming from an award show where nowadays you probably are celebrating something. And he doesn't, most of these artists didn't know what they were coming into that night when they went into AM Studios. And I think. 
some of us might need a drink after being up for <laughs> till the middle of the night trying to sing a song that's not even written by us. I think I noticed it, it isn't addressed really directly in the film, but I noticed Tina Turner looked miserable most of the night. I don't know if you caught that in just going through the footage. I think she was just tired. She was tired and hungry. You saw how excited she was when she had the first fish burger, though. <laughs> the other thing that people who weren't fully around during that era might not have realized is how big Bruce Springsteen was in 1985. I mean, everyone's talking about him exactly the way they talk about Taylor Swift now. The amount of awe from even the most famous people, to put it into context for people, this was, as you mentioned, he literally amazingly recorded this after the final night of the Born USA tour, which was the biggest tour of his career. He was at it's very rare that you can see someone in the exact moment of the peak of their fame. And that was, Bruce has had tremendous success since then. But as far as a pop superstar, that was his exact moment. And, and you obviously talked to him as well for this movie. So maybe you could just talk about the whole, the Bruce of it all. Yeah, I think it was also because he was one of the few, it was Dionne Warwick and him that weren't actually at the American Music Awards. And he was across the country in upstate New York. And to fly over the next day from across the country, that... It's just a telling thing that, okay, he's willing to do it, even though it's a total out-of-the-way thing for him. And on top of that, as you said, like he's coming off the biggest tour of his career, arguably of his entire career, and he's also trying to rest his voice, right? So I think all those factors culminated into the reason why it was such a surprise for him to come and show up. And I should say, too, this is a pop song in a way, right? It, it represents a lot of different genres. It has a lot of different people from all over. But for Springsteen, who was at the peak of his rock pop stardom, to agree to it, I think that added a lot of legitimacy to the project. If when Taylor Swift, if Taylor Swift had Kendrick, and she's had Kendrick on, on things that made her a little cooler to certain people, and yeah, it's I think all those different reasons I mentioned made it just a, a surprise and, and got everyone into it because again, it added a lot of legitimacy. Obviously, it meant something to Bruce, too, because he talked for this movie. Yeah, to be honest, it was Lionel who just called up Bruce and, oh. hey, you want to, can you do this? And it, I mean, in a way, life was imitating art because it took all these artists to call each other up to, to tell them, like, that this is going to be a hit. This is something worth doing. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that Lionel's participation in the film was so paramount. And we're so happy to have him as a partner on this story. Because it's, it's part of his life, it is his experience and his story. Yeah, I, I do wonder whether Lionel and Bruce had spoken since 1985. I, don't, I have no idea. For all we know, they talk every couple of years. Uh, they might all have this. <laughs> there should be a We Are The World WhatsApp group that right. they're just chatting on, right? <laughs> Lionel was at a huge moment, of course, in, in his career. He was the host that night of the American Music Awards and then went straight from hosting this award show to helping helm this insane project that night. And you do a great job of getting across just how much this meant to Lionel. It seems like it really was one of the peak nights of his life. Is Yeah, on top of hosting, he was performing multiple songs. He won <laughs> six awards that night. It's funny, like how 84, 85 was the pinnacle of so many of these people's careers. He was Lewis in the News, came out with sports and obviously Thriller and Purple Rain. And yeah, it, it's what a year to be a pop star in America, right? Uh, but to Lionel's point, I, he talks about it. I think he, again, I don't want to give away the film, but he gets quite emotional when talking about that night. And we actually, we interviewed him in the actual studio. We interviewed most people in the studio 
And when he walked into the room, I think he had come back now and again, maybe a few times since 1985, but he hadn't been in that room that much. And so when he stepped in, the emotions came through and he was, he wanted to tell me all the stories before the camera was rolling. And I was like, (laughs) hold back, don't tell. He loves telling stories. And he really, we did like a four hour interview with him in that room. And he just had so many things to say about that night, as you can see in the film. So I, I do think this is, he ends every concert now with We Are The World. So that shows you he has so many bangers. I, I went through two of his concerts recently and every song, everyone knows every lyric, but the end of the concert is always We Are The World. Obviously, you must have started, I assume, by going through the many hours of footage that were available to you. Tell me about that. Yeah, we were promised actually more footage <laughs> when Julia was talking to USA for Africa, which was the organization that was created for the song. They had all the footage, but I think back in the day, they recorded it for the music video and TV special that Jane Fonda did to show a little bit of the song. They didn't think that someone's going to make it out of East almost 40 years later. So they didn't keep the footage in the most pristine condition. Mm. A lot of it was ruined by moisture. We had to bake a lot of the tapes. We found some of the footage in the trunk of a car of one of the staff members. It was just all over the place. But it was obviously really amazing to see the footage. We always wish that we had more. But I think one of the amazing things that we should talk about is the audio archival that we were able to get a hold of from David Breskin, the Life Life Magazine journalist who basically had the assignment to cover the song. And he turned on his dictaphone three weeks before the recording, as soon as he started doing the interviews and, and talking to people leading up to the recording. A lot of the footage that we first went through had no audio. The audio feed was going straight into the mixing board. So only when they were actually recording, we hear any audio. You're just hearing people singing. You're not hearing these conversations. So a lot of these conversations, and you can tell the audio is, it's a dictaphone. So from the 80s, it's not the best audio. But really, through a lot of expertise from our post team, make it something that we could hear and use and and match with the video and uh, the video archival. So between myself, our editor, our assistant editor, we spent like weeks like match framing by eye, like mouths and things like that to the audio. And so that was also something that I think this film shows is like really making the texture and the atmosphere of the room show come out through the matching of the audio and the, the visual. Our archive producer based in the UK just this is what good archive producers and researchers do. They're just like, oh, let me just reach out to this Life magazine journalist and see what he's got. Is oh yeah, I've got like hours and hours of, <laughs> of just my dictaphone that I still have. And so we got lucky. You must have been so happy when you learned about that. I would basically walk to our edit studio every day and I would just listen. I always walk an hour from where I live to where I work. And I was just listening to them every day. It was like my podcast <laughs> listening time every day. And so it was just eye-opening and yeah, it's so rich. There were points in the early stages of the film that were like, do we have enough material to tell the story? We thought we had 50 hours and then we only had 10 hours. But still, a lot of this footage has never been seen before. But it's never been seen because people didn't have the audio. And so it was like useless footage. But because we married, again, the audio with the video, it, it it made it work. I was definitely worried how we were possibly going to make a film. I didn't want the film just to be voiceover all the time or hearing the song constantly over and over again. It was really getting those behind the scenes moments where you can really just hear the 
tension in the breath of each artist and things like that. Also, the conversations before the recording where you hear like people talking about the planning of the night at Cragen's office and then the amazing audio from Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie, the songwriting process, which is incredible to listen to. You mentioned the Bob Dylan thing. And yeah, that's really become a meme. That There's a great thing on TikTok where the bit of him, everyone's singing in unison and he's standing there surrounded by all these super famous people, not really singing, maybe mouthing the words and looking insanely uncomfortable. The joke is sort of like me when I'm invited to a party I didn't want to go to or whatever. He's just become a symbol of someone feeling incredibly out of place. And you do you take care to contextualize that and show what was going on with him. It, it is fu- it's inherently funny because it's Bob Dylan. It's this legend, probably his most uncomfortable public moment ever. And yet, it, and then it has this redemptive arc of, yes, he did pull it off in the end. It, it was handled, I think, delicately. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think Bob Dylan is one of my favorite subjects in the film and, and, and characters, you can say, because I think in the beginning, it's a humorous situation. As you said, he surely is redeemed in many ways. And I think it's important for us as filmmakers to give context when context is necessary. Of course, I want the viewer to feel fully immersed in the room. But if we can get behind the understanding of why someone is acting certain ways, that's the power of documentaries to just let us into the mind of of some of these participants. Breskin says Bob Dylan is not a singer in the way that Stevie Wonder is a singer, in the same way that Michael Jackson was a singer. And so he still brought his DNA to the to the song, but in a different way than maybe as a, a member of the chorus. There's a moment that's famous. I, I might have been aware of it, but what I wasn't aware is how disruptive it was. I was vaguely aware that there was something with Stevie Wonder and Swahili, but the movie makes it clear that, first of all, in advance, they were concerned that Stevie Wonder was by nature a disruptor, and they had some concerns that he might do something to shake it up. In the middle of the night with all these people standing there, he tried to radically change the song and add a part in Swahili, sort of out of nowhere. And it a little bit of humor in that Swahili is not a language associated with Ethiopia. It was a pretty random choice of African language. You can see the panic on Quincy Jones's face. and It almost threw the whole thing off. Yeah, I wanted to portray that as honestly as it happens and let it be like set up the context a little bit, but then let the scene again play out as real time as possible. And to Stevie's credit, I think he's not on the side of the production where he's thinking we can rush things like artists. And for me in filmmaking, I want all the time I can possibly have to make something right. And so I think he wants to make a contribution but as you can see, like beforehand, Quincy and Tom Baylor and Lionel knew that if they stopped at any moment, it would just slow the whole thing down, especially because you're working with 46. It's not the same that probably Stevie is used to where he, can, again, has time in the studio to really workshop things. So that is my perspective. And it's also the job of the filmmaker to create that tension and, and reveal that tension. And I think, as you said, Brian, you can really feel that more than you did when you read about the story. You make effective use of the clock as a device, which is obviously a classic sort of filmmaking device across genres. And, and I'm sure you realized that was an effective tool at your disposal. Yeah, I was just thinking like Hitchcock's like, you know, bomb underneath the table type of <laughs> device. And we all knew that they had to get it done by a certain time. And for me as a filmmaker, I'm always thinking about, as I mentioned earlier, like there was a heist element to the planning. And then when we get into the studio, like feeling that tension making it feel like a cliffhanger 
we shared a cut with some of the artists as a sneak preview. So Steve Perry watched it and he told me how watching the film was more intense than being in the room in some ways <laughs> because of the stylistic devices, but also because he was so focused on his part and he didn't realize all the fires that had to be put out at the same time as filmmakers, as storytellers. We want to make sure that the immersiveness, the story, the experience is bestowed upon the viewers as well. And the film is very tight. Got to be a challenge to get that tight. Is there stuff you miss that you snipped out? Yeah, the whole story is there. I think we were just tightening it a bit because we wanted to get into the studio sooner. There are certain heist elements that I was playing up a bit more in earlier cuts. But for us, it's like getting into that studio as quick as possible because that's where the heart and a lot of the arc of the story happens. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Were there tropes of the music documentary, the standard music documentary that you were consciously avoiding? I think one of the things that I see with music documentaries is that they, the, the scope is so wide. There's mm. not a specificity sometimes to the story and like the impact. And we played around with ideas of, oh, maybe talking to artists today, like what they think about We Are the World and all that. But I think because of the intimacy of the, of the interviews that we got of people that participated, it wasn't necessarily like Ken Wu was a camera operator, right? He just came to LA and was such a fan of all these different artists. So to have someone who was part of the song, but also can speak to the fandom aspect of the musicians, I, that was the best of both worlds for me. And so, yeah, I always, the films that I like to watch are the ones that are quite specific, appear in, in someone's life rather than a birth to cradle story. Obviously, there's great ones that are birth to cradle, or sorry, cradle to death stories. Yeah, for this one, I was like, okay, let's try to focus as much as we can about this one night because this one night was so compelling. Thanks again to Bao Win. Next up is Tom Beller, the vocal arranger for We Are the World, who had a truly incredible career in music. He and his brother, John Beller, sang on albums from the Monkees, the Partridge Family, and many others. He was one of the backup singers on the Elvis comeback special, and he wrote She's Out of My Life for Michael Jackson. And today, at age 80, by the way, he's taking time to share some really detailed remembrances about We Are the World. 
Quincy always said that you were his uh, secret weapon on this session. Uh, I think we were all there for each other. One of my favorite things was a, a night or two before we actually recorded, you know who Ken Cragen is. He was really sure. like our executive. Yeah. Ken really put all of this together, right? He called Lionel, then he called Quincy, and Quincy called me. But about two nights before we recorded, we went over to Lionel's home, and it was Lionel, Ken, Quincy, and me. And we don't normally sit down and think about what can go wrong. We go into some place and say, yeah, we're going to kill this thing. And But because nobody had ever had 44, 46 <laughs> people in the same room before, there were so many strong creators in the room, too. Because Stevie Wonder, if you take a breath, he'll come in with something. And it'll be good, but we couldn't, but it would be chaos. And the other thing that I've worked with, Diana Ross is another one. She's so sharp and so on it. And if there is some dead air, man, she's going to fill it in. And mm. we sat down and thought, okay, what can go wrong? And then let's have an answer for it. So we're going to war. And you don't have to go to war if you're prepared. Michael, obviously one of the key creative forces on this, and you'd spend time with him in the studio in the 80s. What was... What do people not realize about Michael as a sort of, as a musician, as a recording artist, as a force in the studio? What did you learn from your close association? Thank you for asking that. I learned so much from him. He was the most prepared artist I've ever worked with. And this wasn't just singing, but he knew what he wanted. But he was also very shy because at Motown, that was what was great about Quincy. Quincy unlocked his cage because Motown, it wasn't, it had nothing to do with the brothers. It's just that the only two people that could talk that could contribute of their own ideas was Marvin Gaye and what did they call him then? Little Stevie Wonder. But those were the only two. And and Michael kept saying, Hey, can we can we? And he says, No, 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 just do what you're told. Hear the songs. We got the guys. And and what it's a proven. So I can understand. And yet, at the same time, Barry would take Michael out to dinner. And Michael would show up with a, with a yellow legal pad. And he'd ask him questions. And that's when he learned that publishing was the real estate. And when you can, own your own masters. He shared all of that stuff with him. But it wasn't possible to do. And then, so as he moved on, he was just... And, all, and the brothers were very cool. They're very nice... They're a lovely family. And they, and, but the thing about Michael, he was just, he was from another planet. So prepared, so ready. For instance, let me tell you a story real quick about She's Out of My Life, okay? Because Quincy's doing the whiz. I'm going to do the vocal stuff. And he calls me every day and he said, man, Michael, because he, I knew Michael by that time. I'd been working with him for five years. Quincy had met him at a party. And he said, man, this we sit down to read, to do a reading of the script, uh, the table read. He knows everybody's lines. And you could see his lips moving. Everybody's lines. He had memorized the entire script. And then it was so cute the way that they got together. Anyway, he, Michael was playing the scarecrow. And he's, they're doing a table read. And in, in the movie, he's pulling things out of his straw and reading these sayings. And he was, instead of Socrates, he was saying Socrates because he had never seen the word before. 
So Quincy pulls him at, at a break. He just walks up to him very kindly. He says, hey, man, you're doing a, such a great job. But I just wanted to share with you that the way that we pronounce that word is Socrates. And Michael was like, oh, man, thank you. And the way that Quincy did it, he was protecting him. So he wasn't used to older men protecting him. Yeah. So there was an open door. And he would, and Quincy would tell me about this. I said, man, you are so good for this kid. But I loved working with him, man. He was, and he and Quincy, working with the two of them, they've just been my favorite people. So to take me back, what was the first moment that you heard of before there was a song, before they had written this song, there was this idea, we're going to do this song. When did you first hear that this song was coming, that, that Quincy was trying to put this project together for We Are the World? That became called, We Are the World. He called me and he says, hey man, I just got off the phone with Ken and you've heard that song, Do They Know It's Christmas? He says, it's a great song, but nobody's going to play it in March. They screwed up. <laughs> and he said, Geldof know that. He came here and, and so Ken had Lionel write a song, and he said, it's the beginning of it. And he said, soon as I heard it, I wanted to have Michael kiss it. That's what he said. And I said, great, man, can I hear it? And he said, no. And I never, anytime Quincy said, I've never questioned him, except like, why did you play it for him? <laughs> but anyway, he said, he, he said, no, not yet. And I said, okay, fine. And then, so that's when I first heard about it. But he said, I want you to do the vocals, because we're going to have, we're going to get and this was Ken Cragen's genius, is that we're going to do it with all these people because American awards, what do they call it, American, American music awards. awards. Everybody's going to be here, and Ken's putting that all that together. That's the first I heard about it, but I hadn't heard the song. Then, as things went on, I was in the group. He sent me albums for every one of those singers. That's how well Ken covers things. I had worked with most of them. And then when it got down to it, he said, Dan, I want you to do the arrangement on this, but I have two requests. One is Lionel was the first one to write this, to begin it. So he should be the first voice we hear. I said, okay, cool. And he said, then the first chorus, because Michael came in and they finished it together, Michael should sing the first chorus. And then this is his humor. He said, and I think you should bring Diana in for the second half of the first chorus, because some people think they're the same person. I forgot that was a thing back then, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. don't you love, don't you love Q? He just, no, you can be in the middle of a war and he makes you laugh. And I went, okay, fine. And he said, the rest of it's yours. So we had already together, all of us, I think Ken, and we went down for people because we had more voices than we were going to need. We couldn't do everybody. So we started and we made a list. And the thing I loved about lists that I learned with Quincy is that whatever he was doing that had multiple choices, he would make lists and he'd just make them every day, three or four times. And every time he made the list, it would be different, but the same people. So that's the kind of, that's what I use. I wrote down everybody. And the first thing I heard was with Michael's pure voice. On the first chorus, I wanted the second chorus to growl. We are the world, the <laughs> boss. So that came in. Each one of the voices, I've, I've done a, a few talks about this. Yeah. And they said, was it hard doing it? I said, I did that arrangement in 30 minutes, man. Wow. Because what I did is all those guys came, guys and women became part of me. And when I went through, 
I thought after Lionel, I'd like to hear Stevie. And then, but I'd known Kenny Rogers since I was 18. I grew up with some of these people, and we used to do folk music and all sorts of stuff. So anyway, and I had done a whole album with Billy Joel. And so as the song went through, I heard these different voices. And I had worked with Tina Turner on a television show where I was the special material writer. They would bring the stars through, and you'd have a read on Monday. I said, Tina, I'm probably your biggest fan. Your energy... You're dancing, you're singing, you kill it. But I had an idea walking down here, and I'd like to share it with you. She said, yeah, hit it. I said, I'd like to hear you sing, You Are So Beautiful. And she looks at me with this little innocent look, and she said, I get to sing that? I said, if you want to. And she goes, oh, yeah. So that was bonded us. And also in that song, and it was on a TV show, and unfortunately, we have no recordings of it. I've tried forever went to steve Mm. bender and all these guys nobody seems to have it but it was so beautiful and she was in her lower range and her lower range is so warm and it's so rich so i wrote her down on her line and quincy's looking at the chart and he says man i don't think tina can hit that and i said she can't trust me on this one he said okay fine that was the only one he questioned and right because you were casting her against type in that moment Exactly. And where, to me, it wasn't so much, I was, yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. But my, but but what was driving me was the warmth. Yeah. The lower part of her voice, the whole different thing she has. Yeah. Exactly. And so anyway, and then, then I loved Dionne Warwick coming out of the first chorus, send them your heart. And she was the only one who really went away from the melody, man. Everybody else sang (laughs) the melody, but she earned it. And then I, again, her voice is pure, pure. And then I wanted Willie to follow her up because tell you the truth, Willie sang She's Out of My Life, covered it later. And mm. I, it's been covered by 30, 40 people. But the point is that my favorite recordings are Michael's and because he is so pure again, but the way he sings it. So that's the way it went. And then I just wanted to dig into that moment because That is one of the most brilliant and unexpected uh, transitions in this song when from Dionne Warwick to Willie Nelson. And that really is a spine tingling transition because first of all, you just would, it's both sonically and also just two people who you would never even imagine in the same room, let alone right next to each other sharing a mic. And I think even Dionne Warwick was like, oh, really? (laughs) Willie, but that really worked. Talk about nailing a, a radical idea there. Thank you, Brian. And you know what? I'm glad you're saying that because it was instinct. I didn't think. I heard it. I heard her, and then I heard him. And then it was going to be possible. And then Michael sang the bridge, which was cool. And and I think Michael even said, I want to sing the bridge. And then we were going to put Prince in there. But we all we always knew that Prince, I didn't really know it at the time, but I, I had a feeling Prince had a problem with men. I think his dad was real tough on him. And if you look at him, he's always with chicks, man. He was as a lover, he was with women. He singing, everything was with women. It it made him feel good. And I and and he and Michael liked each other. They didn't dislike each other. And Michael never, as far as I know, Michael and I didn't necessarily talk about this, but Michael was comfortable with him and he wanted to do on bad, they were gonna do bad together. 
Right. And but anyway, that Prince did not want to sing your your butt is mine. Apparently, he said later. I think that's one of his excuses. But I think if anything. He was afraid of Michael. This is sure. pure conjecture sure, on my sure. part. They had a very but, weird relationship, for sure, yeah. Yeah, Michael was not afraid of him. Michael wasn't afraid of anybody. And I don't say that macho-wise. It's just that he loved everybody. So there was no reason to, like, ooh, I don't want to sing with him. But, yeah, that. so that whole thing. And then when we got around to who sang The End of the Bridge... You I mean Huey Lewis or, or Cindy Lauper or Yeah. Yeah. C- Cindy was another one we were keeping our eyes open for because Cindy could she's one of those artists that doesn't want to be told what to do and she takes it personally, the thing. Not in a bad way. It's just the way she is. She's a little high strung, maybe. But what a singer and what a wonderful, marvelous artist she is. And when we lined up the singers who were doing this, we made a big U and it started with Lionel, and then it went this way, and in the middle at the other end was Michael, and the, and then when it got around to here, there it was Kim Carnes and Cindy. And the thing was that we told them when we did, excuse me, we told them when they did their solos, sing it till you're comfortable. A lot of people just did one take and fine, and a lot of people wanted to sing it two or three times, and it didn't matter. But it took a long time to get the Cindy. And she sang it, and there was that noise with her jewelry and stuff. That was the only thing that kind of kept it back. But when she finally got into it and sang it, and then Kim came in, and it was just perfect. And Quincy said, we're done, man. And she goes, wait, wait. I've been standing here for two hours, and these people, uh, the rest, everybody got to sing it as many times as you wanted, and you're going to let me sing it once? And Quincy says, come in the booth, honey. So she comes in and he plays it for her. She goes, okay, I'm done. It was, a, it was so beautiful. And then my favorite, maybe my favorite moment was everybody left except Ken, of course, was doing a mix because we were getting rough mixes. Ken Cragen, Quincy, Diana, and me, the only last four people there. And it's 8.30 in the morning. So we walk out and it's a beautiful morning. And Ken and I are walking together and behind us is Quincy and Diana. And I hear her crying. And I turned around, I thought, oh my gosh, how could she be crying? And she said, I don't want this to be over. So pure. And the other thing that she did was when she walked up, when we first got in the room with 46 people, there was no bad feeling, but the feeling in the room to me was unsettled. Nobody had ever done this, right? That goes on, but but because it's seven minutes long, and what I told them, we're going to sing everything in unison. And and if it works for you, don't sing. If it doesn't work for you, don't sing. Come back in when it works for you. And we got plenty of voices here. And then, so while they're rewinding it, suddenly, I don't know, third or fourth time we ran it, she, here comes Diane, and I'm standing right by Daryl Hall. And she's walking toward us, and I thought, oh my God, what is she going to say? But then she holds her like a Bible and says, Daryl, I'm your biggest fan. Would you please give me your autograph? And that we all looked around and who was in that room. And for the next 45 minutes, we all signed each other's music. (laughs) And the magic of that, Mm. while we thought that Diana might be someone who interrupts something, not to interrupt, but because she's sure. got ideas. But instead, she was at the end of that 45 minutes, we were family. 
all there was no unsettled feeling. We were just all together. And we go, and Quincy comes out and says, let's chop some wood. The, you'd said that you were concerned about Stevie's potential. He was one of the people who could theoretically not disrupt things, but come up with an idea that could lead it. And the, in the excellent documentary we're talking about, we see that he did have all of a sudden he decided that there should be a big part in Swahili. And this is at two in the morning with yes. all of the most famous singers on earth waiting around. It's hard to know what I wondered whether he was a little bit annoyed that he hadn't ended up co-writing the song as had been planned and was subconsciously throwing a wrench in the works, or I don't know. What did you make of that? I didn't make anything of it because <laughs> we tried to reach him. The right, first thing was right. he- ghosted on you, yeah. You know, yeah, before, I mean, until Quincy heard it, he said, I'd like Michael to be, and Stevie could be a part of it too. But we could never reach him. So I don't, I've, and I've worked with Stevie a lot. I never get, you know, it's so funny. He's got ideas forever, but his ego is so manageable, man. He's a sweetheart of a human being. So he was just and trying to improve this just, song. Yeah. Yeah, I think he was trying. And the thing is that he had those two girls there, the ladies there, and that kind of started that whole thing. And and then Michael had an idea for something, and we let it go because we didn't want to be like, no, we're not going to do that. So we let that, and that took about 45 minutes, but it didn't hurt anything. And then finally, everybody just, let's just sing the song. And so yeah, It was a night I'll never forget as long as I live. I, I did want to ask you about Bob Dylan, because the documentary does a great job of showing just how uncomfortable he was at the We Are the World session and how much it took to get him there. And I totally under, understood it because he works alone and he doesn't consider himself a singer. Yeah, he can sing, but he does what he does. And all of a sudden we're saying, hey, do this line. He's like, the best thing, I think one of the funniest things all night was when Stevie, Stevie sings it to him. He goes, it's a choice we're making. And he goes, oh, okay, cool. Like Bob Dylan, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So he reminded Bob who he was. That was another beautiful thing. And the other thing I thought, who's going to be the king tonight or the queen? Who is going to stand up where everybody stops talking and listens to them? And it was when Ray Charles sat at the piano. It took time to rewind and they were moving things around. So we didn't just sing, sing. And all of a sudden he sits down at the piano. I don't remember what he played, but... Everybody stopped talking and just so rave us the king. Tom, there's clearly there's so much to talk about from your career, but thank you for taking the time to uh, give us at least this snapshot. I'm happy to do it, Brian. It's one of my favorite memories because, like I said, I have I've had such wonderful career, and people for years said, "What was your favorite thing?" And I said, "I have no favorites. They all they were all wonderful." How do you choose between Billy Joel and Elvis? But this one stood up. This one stood up like nothing else. Again, that was Tom Beller. And finally, I wanted to bring you my conversation with Sheila E. As we discussed, the drummer and singer had just released her debut album, The Glamorous Life, which was mostly written by Prince, the year before the We Are The World sessions. And she's still busy right now. Her first ever salsa album is due soon. She has her own thoughts on why Prince did not show up for We Are the World. It's worth noting that Prince's guitarist at the time, Wendy Melville, and told the author Alan Light the real reason was that Prince did not like the song at all when he heard it in advance, and also that he didn't want to hang out with, quote, those motherfuckers. But here's Sheila E.'s side of the story. You never really spoke 
before about what happened that night and your feelings about it. And I thought it'd be worth going into a little more detail about it. That was quite a time for you. You had released Glamorous Life not long before, the year before. It was a lot of work getting prior to getting to perform at the American Music Awards. I had been up for almost three days and literally nonstop. And we were performing. And by the time we got there, I was exhausted. And then the adrenaline, thinking about having to perform in front of so many of the people that you grew up listening to in the audience. And you're going, wow, they're all sitting there. When you're young, this is your first big hit as a solo artist. And there was a lot going on. And it was a big deal for for them to trust me that my lights, the lighted sticks would work. And they were hesitant to turn the lights off because they're, they're like the network was saying, what if the lights don't come on and we go black? That's That doesn't happen. We can't do that. So if you watch that performance... They waited until the lights went on for to turn their lights off to try to get that vibe. But there was a lot going on. And by the time we got to, after the show, going to do We Are the World, I was so tired. I went in my lingerie type. That was a robe and a top. And I that's why I wore my glasses, because I was so tired. But I was excited to be there as well. You were opening on the Purple Rain Tour at that time. You've got a break to do the AMAs and and record We Are the World. And and your performance, I just watched it again. It's a great performance. So you you had a great night up to that point, or at least I hope it felt that way. No, all all of the above. It was amazing. No one had ever done what I, using the sticks to light up, which is, that was like opening a door that no one had opened and known for that. And then people expect me to have it every show since then. So it's like, where are your sticks that light up? Yeah, that's a whole nother issue. But it was amazing, an amazing night. Just even through being as exhausted as I was, it was an incredible night. Well before that night, they had reached out to you to be part of this. How was that invitation presented to you? I don't remember who said what, because Lionel Richie and I had the same attorneys and how I got my team together through his team. So it probably came from them. But everyone was invited, of course, whoever they could get. And especially because everyone was going to be at the American Music Awards. At some point, there was a suggestion that you might get a solo part in the song. When was that communicated? That was at the very beginning. And I think Lionel told me, but yeah, everyone's going to get solo parts. And I was waiting and waiting. So if we're getting to that part, yeah, I waited and up until I couldn't wait anymore. And I just thought, wow, this is weird. What's happened? I kept asking. He goes, we're just trying to figure it out. They had already made up their mind. They already knew what the script was. And I wasn't privy to the information. But again, (laughs) you don't know and you're there for the cause. So that was the most important thing was to be there and be this historical moment of gathering the best of the best together to raise money for the people in Africa. Absolutely. You get there. It's late at night after the AMAs. You're already performed looking out to some of the biggest names in music. You get to the We Are the World sessions and everyone is there. Not everyone knew each other. There had never been that many stars crammed in together. What what did it feel like? What, what did you experience? A lot of the those award shows back then, it were a lot of us you know, involved in being in those shows, but to have everyone in one 
little space like that all at the same time. It's sometimes you perform and you stay and you leave, you sit outside or you, whatever you do. This was different. A lot of us knew each other. And then there were definitely some I've never met before or only in passing. But to be in the room was pretty amazing. There were people there that I would hope to have met in my lifetime during my career. And people like Bruce Springsteen. And I was really excited to meet Cindy Lauper. And she's standing next to me. Can I take a picture? You just like, I was a fan of everyone, even though I knew a lot of people. I knew the Jacksons and the Pointer Sisters and James Ingram, of course, Lionel, Quincy, Michael. There were many that I knew. Al Jarreau. I can't even, I don't even know who else. Kenny Rogers, who, Huey Lewis. So there were many that I knew, and a lot of them from the Bay Area as well, artists. But it was a great room to be in. Must have been weird, even if you're used to pretty lofty company, to look around and just see surrounding you in that little room at, at that moment. That was a dream come true. That was a great moment, for sure, to have all of those people in the same room, all of us together, and knowing that, again, the, what the cause, what it was for was uh, magical. And when our brother came and spoke and he talked about what the cause was about, it really put everything in perspective as to why we were there. It changed the dynamic of the room. Wow, this is what we're here for. Uh, a lot of us actually teared up as he was speaking because the reality of it, we're all here and this is great. Hey, what are you doing? Blah, blah. And then, then bam, this is why we're here. And once he said that, we went right into it. It, it was magical. Subtext of all this is they were trying to get you to call Prince. I called him on the phone. Yeah. You told him that he should come down or that he would like it? Or what did you tell him? He wanted to know what was going on as well. How was it going? How did I feel about it? And when I told him he should definitely be there, I was like, everyone's here, but a few people. And you're one of the few that are not here. But he's, I knew it's, he's not comfortable in that environment, especially being around everyone like that. It would be weird for him. I tried to get him there. And then, of course, the consistency of Lionel, Quincy, I don't know if Stevie said anything, but Lionel and Quincy, I'm for sure. Maybe Ken Cragen, I don't know. But they kept saying, why don't you call Prince and see if you want? Everyone took turns trying to get me to call him back and have him come down. And I guess he did offer to Quincy to come in and play a guitar solo, but that's not what they wanted. He wanted me to relay that message to Quincy. He goes, just tell gotcha. him I'll play guitar. And they're like, no, we wanted to come down. I'm like, it ain't going to happen. I did one of Prince's last interviews. I could see that he wasn't the type of personality that would want to be in a room with a hundred other superstars. He liked to be con in control of any situation, right? And also that maybe there was a certain shyness on some level. I don't know. Oh, definitely shy. No, definitely shy. It would be a weird situation for him to be in that environment with everyone. Absolutely. One-on-one -on -one or maybe, you know, a couple of people, but not everyone. The, the Prince-Michael Jackson dynamic is always a mysterious one. I'm not sure that would have how much that would be a factor. I know that speaking to someone involved with the session, they thought that was a factor as well. They always had a weird relationship, those two guys. It wasn't really weird. I can't speak on that because I know personal things, but it's not that it was really weird because there were times, yeah, I won't speak on it. I'll just leave it at that. Do, do you know what's sort of touching is you're protecting him as if he can still Absolutely. hear you. No, I, I protecting him and some things should just be what they were. Whoever was in that room is what it was. And sometimes you can share some things, but yeah, the biggest thing we can share about him is his legacy, and that's the music. So you eventually, as you were there, you started to feel a little bit, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe used or manipulated that they had you there more to get Prince 
and that understandably bugged you. Yeah, I started feeling a little weird, and then I was like, wow, they're not even, there's no attempt to get me in. Like, I was just sitting on the side and waiting, going back and forth with Lionel and Quincy, and I'm like, okay, this is just getting strange. I just felt, what the heck is going on? And again, it was that feeling, but at the same time, it wasn't confirmed until Ken Cragen put his book out, and someone told me about what he had written, and I was like, oh, that all makes sense now. I had no idea, but I did, because it felt like that, but no one ever said it to me, and I just thought, wow, they were all my friends. That's cold-blooded. But I guess you figured it out enough that night that you kind of left, is what I understand? Oh, by that time, yeah, it was almost four in the morning, maybe, and I couldn't stay up anymore. It was just too much, and I just felt like I kept being pushed not to do it, and really, I kept asking. They're like, we're just still trying to—and I just thought, no, you're not. At that point, no, you're not. I'm just going to leave. So I left. It was just weird. And some, I guess, basically, they had actually gone so far, which is extraordinary. They had held a part for Prince. It was—they ended up giving it to Huey Lewis. So that's how far they had pushed this. They really were— in, in a way, they really had faith in your ability to get him down there. Absolutely, like, uh, 100%, yeah. So I know you went home, understandably, at four in the morning. What were your immediate feelings about it the day after, and then even when the song came out? Obviously, that's a song, if you were alive in 85, that was a song you'd hear everywhere. Did it become a, a negative thing for you, or hearing no. it everywhere? Or how did you see it? Oh, no, it was a huge blessing. No, that goes away. You feel bad and you feel like, wow, that was a strange situation. And But then you're in the midst of your own career and still out on tour and you keep going and you forget about what had happened that night as far as that side of it. Talking about, man, it was amazing to have everyone in the room and blah, 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 and trying to remember things. And then really what we were there for definitely surpassed any negative situation that night. and. What we were able to do for the people, you just, you, I would do it all over again. 84, 85 was such an amazing time for pop music. And you think about, again, there, there you were in the Purple Rain tour. You had Prince. Everything was larger than life. These huge stars, there was so much great music, and music was so much at the center of pop culture. What a time to have put out your debut. It was the most amazing time. It really was. And music was incredible then. And all the artists that were winning Grammys or American Music Awards or any of what was going on at that time, radio was playing all of the music. It, it didn't feel like competition in a way. The way that it is now, I feel that everyone's always competing against each other. And it didn't, in a sense, to me, feel like that. We were just doing what we do. And I get to do what I love, is to play and performance. I can't even begin to tell you how amazing that feels. And the love that I feel like I could never give back, but I give so much because that's how I feel that everyone gives to me. And to be in that place in the 80s like that was just so amazing. And I always talk about, wow, I think I was born at the right time and in Oakland at the right place musically. And then to be able to be in a time in the 80s where music to me was just the best, just the best. There were not just solo artists, but there were bands as well. And it was just wonderful to see and be a part of. It was overwhelming. It's beautiful. And it still is. I, I play every show now like it was the beginning of my career. And that's what's so special about it. That's amazing. Uh -huh. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.